So, we are going to be starting today. Welcome everybody to out to our new course. This course is only four classes, not six as the usual ones. The next course is going to be six. You have the cards already about what the next class is going to be about is meditations from Sinai. It's on meditation. That's the next course. So welcome to our important groundbreaking course. I'm probably on a very most sensitive and ancient issue. One of the uh, stories that I like to tell when we talk about anti-Semitism is, is that when my first daughter was born, you probably heard the story once before, my first daughter was born, she was born on the, right after the second Seder. It was a three-day holiday, so the first Seder was, uh, I think it was Thursday, Friday, and then when Shabbos. And she, so Friday night after the second Seder, my wife says we have to go to the hospital. <laughs> So then living in Brooklyn, we had to call a car service to take us to the hospital. We didn't have a car. And also it's easier on Shabbos, you know, taking a car service. And we had to make sure it was a non-Jewish car service. So we already reserved beforehand with white top car service. We were going to call them up. But we didn't want to make that a Jew should drive us to the hospital. So we called them up and we said, can you please make sure to send a non-Jew to pick us up to go to the hospital? As we get into the car, we all of a sudden hear the guy on the, those days, there were the CB radios, there wasn't cell phones. And the guy, the, the dispatcher says, so did you pick up the anti-Semites yet? <laughs> <laughs> but for as long as there have been Jews, there have been two unwavering constants. Anti-Semites and jokes about anti-Semitism. Right? So like the old one that they used to say, this was, a, this was another one that they used to say about the, uh, assassin, after the assassination of Tsar Alexander, in Russia, in 1881, a government official goes over to a rabbi and says, I assume you know who's behind the assassination. So the rabbi says, of course, the Jews and the milkmen. So the politician looks at the rabbi and says, why the milkmen? So the rabbi looks back at the politician and says, why the Jews? <clears throat> but unfortunately, the discussion of anti-Semitism is not a new one. It's been around way too long. And it's not just, unfortunately, a study of historic events. It became something that in the latest times, in the 20th century, for a long time, all we worried about was Jews, how they were living in Israel, Jews behind the Iron Curtain. We never thought that anything of that nature on these shores of America that we would have to worry about our well-being and living as Jews. But over the past two decades, the rise of anti-Semitic incidents began to appear in numerous countries, whether it was in England, in Sweden, in Australia, in Canada. And you can look in your books on page three and four. There's different figures there that you can see of in different countries of how anti-Semitism has become all of a sudden on the rise. And as we know, anti-Semitic activity was not only uh, limited to countries abroad, but also the countries, unfortunately, where we live. Just recently, as of October 27, 2019, I think just t t uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, was the third yard site of this story of what happened in Pittsburgh. And then what happened in the Chabad in San Diego. Again, anti-Semitic events. If you want to look at the data that we have from the Anti-Defamation League, where they look at over here, just from, 2000 and from 2013 to 2019, and you can see the data clearly how anti-Semitism is on the rise, unfortunately, of anti-Semitic incidents that happened in America. So 
So if we look about what happened there at that time. So we see very clearly how unfortunately this is not something of the past. It's something of that's unfortunately going on right now. But before we address this issue and before we continue, it is important to clarify what we're actually going to be talking about today. For many Jews, especially starting in the 20th century, responding and reacting to anti-Semitism became part of their core identity. And there's an interesting, uh, if you look over here in the figure 1.6, it's an interesting, I find it very uh, telling, this type of uh, data that they have. The percentage of U.S. Jews, what they consider being Jewish. 76% of Jews consider being Jewish remembering the Holocaust. While in contrast, which is the saddest part, I think, of this whole figure, is that only 15% of Jews consider being Jewish, observing Jewish law. And everything else in between. 45% caring about Israel. Now, this was done in 2013. I think, unfortunately, the trend has been down. But regardless, remembering the Holocaust has become something, so to speak, essential to people's Judaism or how they identify as Jewish. While remembering the past is very, is very important, and standing up to anti-Semitism is very important, the question is, what is our task? And over here in historian, Deborah Lipstadt explains, and I think she says it very telling, so I'll read it inside, text number 1A on page, third, page 9. For those that don't have books yet, we're going to get more books, and I'm sorry we didn't have enough today. She says it as follows. Most Jews will be immediately stepped forward when Jews anywhere being attacked by anti-Semites. This is, of course, as it should be. What is regrettable, however, is that for some Jews, the fight against anti-Semitism becomes the sum total of their Jewish identity. Recently, a much-respected Jewish communal leader lamented to me that he regretted not having educated his children about Jewish traditions and culture. He was, however, very proud of the fact that he embedded with them a total intolerance of anti-Semitism. His kids were prepared to be at the barricades to do the battle against his hatred and many others as well. His comments made me sad. Anti-Semitism has become the drummer to which the family identity marches. They know of a Jew as an object, not a subject. In other words, what is done to Jews becomes, more far, becomes far more significant than what Jews do. This well-intentioned Jewish father has deprived his children of a rich and multifaceted legacy. They have been taught to see themselves mainly as perennial victims. The seeds to oppressor over control over one's destiny. It leaves many Jews, including this man's children, aware of what to be against, but what not to be for. When we study about anti-Semitism, and when people remember about anti-Semitism, unfortunately, they remember what we are against. We forget what we're for, that we're a people, that we have so much to us that we can stand for and not just be against something. Or in the words of Barry Weiss, she was a, um, a columnist for, for New York Times. She put it this way. You can see it in text number 1B, and I think that's also amazing what she says. The Jewish people were not put on this world, on this earth, and listen to this word, to be anti-anti-Semites. We were put on earth to be Jews. We're not only here to stand against things. We're not only here to be able to say, okay, and that's the only time we're going to get together and band together to be able to stand up. And as we saw over history in the past, and I'm sure many of you remember when there was the uh, uh, marches for the Jews behind the Iron Curtain, where it was the marches 
for any case of the million march that was there after Pittsburgh happened. All the different things, Jews come together to fight anti-Semites. But why can we come together and why can we understand and appreciate and teach our children that we're not just against something, but we're actually for something? And as we're going to unfold and we're going to see, to not use anti-Semitism to make it the basis of our Judaism. And many times it's problems when we overemphasize it, as we'll talk about it, is because then we, so to speak, indulge and associate the next generation. We say, you know what it means to be Jews? That they always hated us. If you take the story of, uh, what is it called? You know, Fiddler on the Roof, where the guy says, God, can't you choose somebody else after? Again, it was a concept that they believed that their Judaism was something which was the oppressed, the victim. Not that we have so much to share with the world, to give the world, but on the contrary, we're the ones that they're being oppressed. And therefore, this course is not about rallying a call and getting all the Jewish people that we should all get, you know, as the JDL used to say, every Jew at 22. That's not what we're here to be able to fight anti-Semitism. Rather, we're going to address some very real questions about Jew hatred and what people are asking in today's climate. So if you can look in figure number 1.7 on page 11, this is the outline of what the course is going to be talking about, which is, <clears throat> what are some tools for coping with fears triggered by anti-Semitism? That's what we're going to talk about today. What role does faith play in addressing anti-Semitism? What are the best strategies to reduce anti-Semitism? What are root causes of anti-Semitism? How does identifying these factors impact our efforts to prevent the hatred? How can we counter Israel-focused anti-Semitism? How can we determine when criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic? How can we forestall well-meaning Jewish youth from unwittingly lending their voices to anti-Semitic agendas? And what's the best strategy for dealing with public figures who take an unfavorable position towards us? And this is something which we, every single day, unfortunately, have to grapple with these situations. And many times it's out of ignorance. And ours we're going to explore in the next four classes, we're going to address these seven core issues. So as we begin with our journey, it's important to recognize, well, anti-Semitism is not something we should lose sight of, but at the same time, it should not be our sum total of what Judaism is all about. And that's where we're going to start from, and that's where we'll take it from. So let's start with our first exercise or question, which is, have you, anyone, or have you or anyone close to you recently been a victim or verbal or physical anti-Semitic assault, yes or no? And if no, consider any recent anti-Semitic incident that you heard about. Now, the question is, when you hear about an anti-Semitic uh, event, what are your immediate feelings after the incident? Anybody? Yes. Well, it happened to me. Um, anger. Anger. And what I did was I stood up and I addressed it immediately. Okay. To the person who was. Uh, so that's now when you after that event, did you fear? Did you have? Were you scared? Or did you say, "How can this happen in this country?" No, I I, I believe it could happen anywhere. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. When when that person said what he said to me, I just said you're ignorant. Okay. And I moved on. Just heard stuff on the news, nothing you know specific to myself, but you know it causes me some worry because anxiety, worry. Okay. Anybody else? Huh? Okay. Oh, you're saying you were attacked verbally yourself? Yeah, rather than what guy in the path by the door. 
Yeah, what were you saying? I ripped up the contract. So many times when we have these different incidents, we start with the first feeling. And one of the things that we find, which is natural, and probably from most people that I've spoken to when they see these events that happen, let's say, in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the first reaction to most people were, we got to lock our doors, we got to do this, do that, and the other, maybe hide our Judaism and all these different things. And hopefully, when we have this fear and anxiety, the first thing that, even though it comes to us and it makes that, so to speak, that fearful, the first thing we need to do is, of course, channel the regular um, local energy, so to speak, to our government, lobby our officials to be able to be safer and do effective work in making sure not to spread anti-Semitism. But today we'll talk about one concept, which is the concept of fear. Jewish tradition tells us, however, that fear and worrying are something that is very dangerous. If you look at Talmud, it says as follows. Text number two. The Talmud says, It is stated in the book of Ben Sirah, Do not allow an anxiety into your heart, for an anxiety has killed the mighty. King Solomon said the same. If there's an anxiety in your heart, quash it. When people are over-concerned about a very situation, a lot of paranoia sets in. You become overly worried, you become frozen, and you're not capable of even responding. Thank God most of you in this room, when you had that confrontation, you had the wherewithal, you had the ability to stand up and to respond. But there are many times that it comes as a shock, or it comes from people least expected, or people say a comment, or if it's not even you, if it happened to somebody else, even across the different state. But the very fact that we felt safe in this country for so many years, Today, Jews live in a place in the most safest, even with all the incidents, as we'll get to in a moment, we are in one of the safest places in the world. And the very fact that that happens, automatically it triggers you, and it's just one second. If it can happen here, it can happen anywhere, as they say. So the number one thing is to be capable of a response. We cannot allow ourselves to be frozen because of fear and because of anxiety. Even more so, what happens is, all of a sudden... Imagine, and I'm sure this is any person that's been attacked by any individual, when they're attacked again, or not even if they're not attacked, any person that looks like their attacker all of a sudden brings a phobia within them that, oh boy, this person can be an attacker again, regardless of who the person is. Let's say if you grew up in a neighborhood where there were certain, it was prevalent that these people were their attackers, wherever you are in the world, you're going to be suspect of it. I remember traveling a week after 9-11, on an airplane. I was going to be uh, to, to lead the services someplace in, uh, and I was getting on the plane. The plane was empty. It was only me, my wife, and there was another woman there who was dressed in the whole uh, Arab uh, look you know, and everything else. And she was carrying a baby. And the first thing you see, because you just happened 9-11, was less than a week ago, maybe she has something in a package and we're, you know, you convince her she has a baby so she's not going to do it. You know, but why did that happen? Because all of a sudden you live through a certain experience and that experience triggers that any person that's associated with that type of experience automatically is going to bring and blame and say. The same ideas with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism can be and can cause a great concern by the very fact that we all of a sudden start thinking that everybody's an anti-Semite. And that's number one concern. And number two, 
is that it makes us frozen in space and it doesn't allow us to respond accordingly. So what we need to do, number one, is balance and to ensure that our caution and preparedness doesn't turn into a paranoia, into a worriness, into an anxiousness. And therefore, we're going to talk about today a three-pronged approach to ensuring to be able to give us that sense of security, notwithstanding things that happen around us. And in order to look at this three-pronged approach, we're going to talk about, the number one, the miraculous people. Number two, consider the full picture. And I fear not because you are with me. Those are our three approaches that we're going to talk about. And what we're going to look at is three different pointers that are going to help us reduce fear. Now, I must say these three pointers don't only help us reduce fear with anti-Semitism, but they will help you reduce fear in almost any aspect in life. That creates an anxiety you're fearful, whether it's because of a pandemic that's going around or whether it's because you're afraid to start a new business or whatever it may be. These three pointers help us as individuals to give us, as they say in Hebrew, bitachon atzmi, self-confidence, and even more so, confidence in God that gives us and leads us to the right places. And I want to stress, I'm not trying to ignore the severity and the reality that we live in and think all of a sudden ignorance is bliss type of thing. Notwithstanding the reality, these things help us that when I see, so to speak, what the issue is, I can still understand it, appreciate it, realize it, and then at the same time be strong notwithstanding the issues. So let's go back to this um, woman who was a professor of modern Jewish history. Her name is Devorah Lipstadt and Holocaust Studies of Emory University. To a large degree, she has dedicated her entire professional life to the study of persecution of Jews because she studies about the Holocaust and so on. She published a book called, a paper called Anti-Semitism Here and Now, talking about the rise of anti-Semitism in the last decade. And yet when she was asked in a recent interview if she's concerned about the future of the Jewish people, she had a phenomenal response. Look in text number three. The fact that we're in such a historical anomaly, it makes no sense. Sometimes when I'm asked about anti-Semitism, people will say, well, how can you be optimistic on all this? How can you see the positive? It's such a dreary situation. And I say, now listen to this, because we shouldn't be here. And the fact that we are here shouldn't be taken for granted. We as Jewish people in our history have been the most persecuted nation in the world. Never has there been a nation that has gone through as much persecution as we've been through. And the story is simple. We're successful, they're jealous of us, they hate us, they kick us out, and then they want us back. That's, if you want to sum it up, pick a nation, whether it's Egypt by Pharaoh and Abraham, whether it's Yitzchak, whether it's Yaakov, whether it's the Jewish people as a whole, whether it's the Romans, the Greeks, the, the, what was it, just a few years ago, Spain was offering Jewish people to come back to their country. You go... Even Poland, when they made the different, when they made the four divisions of Poland, one of the things were that they wanted the Jews to be the merchants, but they didn't want them to have all the rights because then they'll compete. And all the different things historically, wherever we've been in, we've been the most persecuted, while at the most time, the most contribution to the country. And it was threatening our Jewish identity. And yet, miraculously, we survived. The very fact that it's inconceivable how we endured and how randomly in history, it's not just a fluke. It is because we are a miraculous nation. 
There's an interesting thing that happened. How the Maimonides dealt with anti-Semitism. About in the year 1168, there was a terrible um, uh, problem that the Jews of Yemen were confronted with. And they were confronted with a three-pronged problem. And at the time, they had three issues. Number one, they had a fanatical Muslim cleric who was the ruler of Yemen who decided that every single one of his Jewish Yemen subjects would have to convert to Islam. And if they don't convert to Islam, they would be punished and kicked out. Number two, they had a Jew who became an apostate, who became a Muslim. And therefore, he said that everything in the Torah is incorrect. And therefore, all the Jews should convert to Islam. To make matters worse, not only did they have a Jew that became a Muslim, a fanatical Muslim, they had an imposter Messiah at the same time amongst the Jewish people. So over here they were dealing with a lot of stuff. And the rabbi in Yemen at the time didn't know what to do. So he sent a letter to Maimonides to ask for help. I need some support. And Maimonides addressed the sage and through him the entire Jewish population of Yemen and eventually they were able to stand through all the persecutions and none of them converted and they were able to do it. But what Maimonides did was, Maimonides put it this way. In text number four, Maimonides responds to the Jews of Yemen. He says as follows. God assured our father Jacob early on that although the nations would enslave his descendants, treat them cruelly and subjugate them, his children would survive and endure. Whereas those who enslave them would eventually disappear. God told him, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. Although they are destined to be trampled and downtrodden, as everyone tramples on the dust of the earth, they will overcome and triumph in the end. Just as to the continued analogy, the dust eventually rises over those who trampled it, where their corpses are buried, so Israel will remain in existence, whereas those who have trodden upon them will not. The Creator similarly assured us through His prophets that He will never be destroyed, that he will never permit our annihilation, and that we will never stray from being a nation devoted to its purpose. Just that it is impossible for God's own existence to be nullified, so it is impossible that we should be destroyed and eliminated from the world. So spoke Malachi, I am God, I have not changed, and you, the children of Jacob, have not been destroyed. The miracle of Jewish survival has baffled every historian on the world. The miracle, the very fact that God made the promise to Jacob in this week's Torah reading, where God tells Jacob, where he's battling Esau, he's battling Lavan, he has the world against him. And God tells him, don't worry about it. The same way I am eternal, you're going to be eternal. You've got nothing to worry about it. The divine promise that was given to the Jewish people gave the Jews of Yemen at that time gave the Jews of Yemen in 1168 the power to stand up against every evil that was against them. There was nobody on their side. They stood up, not one of them converted to Islam. They stood up and they were faithful regardless in the face of their bitter suffering that they had to go through. So while at the same time, so while we see that all the difficulties that are going on and all the challenges as Jewish people that we have, we have to remember number one, that we are a supernatural nation. We're not here like everybody else. There are people that come and go, but the Jewish people are eternal. So while there may be incidents here and there, what gives us the assurance that we're here to stay is because we, the Jewish people, were here for the past 3,000 years, and regardless of whatever persecutions were there, we're here to stay and will never go away. 
That's number one. And that in itself gives us a certain sense of pride, strength, to answer back to those anti-Semites, to stand up against those anti-Semites and not be triggered of fear and frozenness because of the anti-Semites. So some of you may be thinking, well, okay, that's all nice. Jewish people survived. That was then. But we got to contend to new realities. They're becoming smarter. There's new ways of doing it. So here's just a little tidbit which may help you in this information, which is that the very fact that historically anti-Semitism was not only limited to some people who were, you know, had nothing to do with their time. Historically, the governments, as we've just seen in Yemen, were against the Jewish people. Every government, you name it, in the past 2,000 years, had something against Jews. Spain expelled Jews. England expelled Jews. France expelled Jews. Portugal. Portugal. You name a country, they expelled Jews. And it wasn't the people. It was the government. In Russia, whether it was the Tsar was against you, or the Cossacks were against you, or the Polish were against you, you pick it, you were against the government. It wasn't just a few individuals. In regard to that, thankfully today, there's not a government in the world today that is at least openly anti-Semitic. Every single type of anti-Semitic incident that happens today is from individuals. Today, there's a phenomenon of social media, so where these eclectic individuals, so to speak, can together come up with schemes to be able to create some type of havoc. But as themselves, as individuals they are, but not as entities, so to speak, as corporations, if you want to call it. Another point to consider is that the real progress has been made even about anti-Semitic individuals. The Anti-Defamation League since 1964 has been tracking, so to speak, people's anti-Semitic attitudes of the American population. And they do so by surveying people and seeing what kind of stereotypes people associate with Jews. So it's actually interesting what kind of stereotypes they put in. Figure number 1.8 on page 18. They have different uh, stereotypes that anti-Semites usually say about Jews. And I'm not going to go into all of them. But in 2019, and here's the interesting figure, which is, while anti-Semitic incidents have gone up, anti-Semitic attitudes have gone down. So while the anti-Semitic incidents have gone down, again, that can be because of social media, whatever it may be, anti-Semitic, the intensity of the attitude of people, it's not like what they used to say in the good old days, 29% 29% of Americans believed, uh, if you look over here, 25, 29% of Americans believed in six or more of those statements. That means in these statements that you saw in figure 1.8 only, and, and the, real, the number hasn't gone up in the past three or four or five years. You can see it over here, uh, the ADL poll, they talk about it in text number five. Abe Foxman, he used to be the director of the ADL. He says as follows, it is heartening that attitudes towards Jews have improved over the last few years, historically, have declined significantly in America. Abraham H. Foxman, ADL director, on the occasion of our centennial, it causes us to take a broader perspective to appreciate how far we have come in 100 years. In 1913, there were no surveys like this, but anti-Semitism was a rife in public and private expression, in universities, jobs, and neighborhoods. In 1964, 
When we did our first survey, we found that 29% of Americans held anti-Semitic views, so we and America have made some real progress. So what we have over here is, as we mentioned, so even if you think that, yes, we are the Jewish people, but they're still anti-Semites, what do we do about it? You should know it's not that bad. <laughs> even though, yes, there are incidents, and we have to remember that these two truths, while it may be that they're anti-Semites, but incidents have gone down, and keeping a balanced mind is just another way of helping your fear and anxiety and giving you a little bit of pride that, yes, there is hope for the future. But here we go to a step even further. And here's the third prong in it. If I were to ask you, what is the most common phrase mentioned in the Torah? What would you say? Okay, anybody else? Amen. Actually, yeah, it's actually mentioned a few times. And here's one that you probably never imagined. The most often word phrase in the entire Tanakh is Al-Tira, don't be afraid. Starting from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to the Jews, you mention a place. It's mentioned. Here's your numbers for you. It appears in the Bible 44 times, in the plural 70 times, in tense variations 110 times. God is telling the Jewish people, don't fear. Why is this phrase so often in the Torah? What is the logic behind the slogan? It's like I'm telling you, love ice cream. What do you mean? How can I tell me not to fear? I'm afraid. It's like when your kids are scared of the lightning, you tell them, don't be afraid. I'm afraid. What do you want me to do? But God's telling you, don't fear. So who says, where, King David says an unbelievable thing. King David says the following in Psalm 23. And I'm sure you're all familiar with Psalm 23. And he says as follows. A song of David, God is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He allows me to lay down in green pastures. It leads me beside wood still waters. And even if I walk in the valley of the, of the death shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. What is King David doing? He's calling God his shepherd. King David was a shepherd. The Talmud explains to us and tells us what kind of shepherd King David was. King David was a shepherd who, understand, who understood his sheep knew what it meant to care for his flock. It says that King David would set fences and he would first allow the young sheep who had very soft jaws and you know, very difficult for them to eat, to eat the soft grass. Then he, would call the, then he would let in the older sheep and only at the end the young strong to eat the leftover grass to be able to take the whatever's you know, harder time. That means he looked for each sheep, one of his flock, every single one. He looked at them individually, how he can help them, what he can do. King David, when he calls God his shepherd, he's not just using a metaphor, but he understood what it means to be a shepherd. And he understood that a shepherd means that every time he is trusted, that the sheep know that they are taken care of, that they are in good hands. And over here, the very fact that King David is saying, God is telling you, don't fear because you are in good hands, gives you the comfort, the trust that you're in good hands. Watch this video, it's very telling. In January 1948, in the dark hours of the Soviet Union, a child was born in Stalino, who was destined to symbolize mighty struggles. A bitter, global struggle between the bald eagle and the brown bear. 
in the throes of their Cold War. A lopsided struggle between terrifying tyranny and human rights. Between brutally enforced atheism and the free soul of a believer. Between monstrous anti-Semitism and a proud Jew. And between the temptation to collapse and the superhuman will to survive. Nathan Sharensky graduated from Moscow's Physical Technical Institute before joining the underground human rights movement, reclaiming his Jewish heritage and emerging as a foremost dissident and spokesman for human rights. In 1973, Nathan took the calculated risk of applying for an exit visa to Israel. He was denied and rose to the forefront of Jewish refusenik activities. Well, I was in the middle of the struggle when uh, situation looked very dangerous, when some of my friends of Helsinki group were already arrested, when new wave of repressions against Jewish activists was clearly prepared. And at this time I received a note from my wife every time, through some American Jewish tourists. And together with this note, a small song, and they realized that this song was with me in the last year when I was trying to help you in different places of the world. And I have a feeling that the time has come to send it to you. And I opened the book and I can't read the answer because I never learned how to read these texts. And also, uh, most of the words they don't know, many of the words they know about 1,000 words made of the, my our daily struggle, prison, demonstrations, uh, but not these words. So I decided I don't have time for these small things, but I'm very busy now in organizing demonstrations and press conferences. And put and almost forgot. In 1977, he was arrested on false charges of spying for the United States. But prior to the announcement of his verdict, he famously declared, to the court I have nothing to say. To my wife and the Jewish people, I say, next year in Jerusalem. Sentenced to 13 years imprisonment, he spent the next 16 months some 1,600 miles away from Jerusalem in Moscow's Lefortovo prison, often in solitary confinement and in a special torture cell before being transferred to a Siberian labor camp. They bring me the list of things that they confiscated and then you mentioned this uh, small black book, not in Russian. And I understand that they're talking about this song book, which was sent to Vitale, by Vitale. And then I remember this note, which is sent. And I demanded that give it to me. And it was a long struggle. Three years after I was arrested, they returned this book to me, together with the telegram from my mother that my father passed away. And it's, of course, it's difficult to understand. It's always difficult, but when you cannot be with your family. And they decide that the only thing which I can do, I will be reading this thought book until I understand. And so I'm reading these hundreds of thousands of words where I cannot understand where the sentence begins and ends. I cannot understand more than half of the words. And then simply comparing between different places of these words, I try to find out the connection. 
And it so happened that the first phrase from all these hundreds of thousands of words was a short phrase of certain very short words, which I understood fully that that is the phrase. Gam ki elech bagay tzalamavet lo ira ra kiata madi. It's from the psalm Kav Gimel, and when it will go through the valley of shadow of death, will fear no evil because you are with me. And that was very powerful. It was very important for me. And seven they were taken from me. I was fighting and on hunger strikes, refusing to work, sometimes refusing to eat until they would bring it to me back. He resisted and persisted with remarkable courage. His miracle dawned in 1986 when he was released in a prisoner exchange. Leading Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Shimon Peres, welcomed him to Jerusalem. And even when they already took me from prison and replaced all my clothes, I was lying in the snow refusing to enter the airplane without getting this book back because I felt that all my strengths were into that. So that was the only piece of property which uh, I took from prison and all these years it's always with me and it gives me a lot of strength. The Hebrew phrases in Sharansky's Petite Black Book were authored 28 centuries earlier by King David, who reigned from the splendid city of which Sharansky dreamed, Jerusalem. It was he who crafted the powerful line of prophetic poetry that lent indestructible hope and undefeatable strength to endless generations of Jews in distress. Even if I must tread through a valley forged by death's own shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. A fountain of eternal confidence generated on behalf of each Jew in every century in the face of the mightiest and most monstrous obstacles. You are not alone. God is with you. Walk with confidence. The creator of the universe stands guard at your side. So as we begin to think about this topic, imagine if we would li- how our lives would be different if we can build this type of level of trust in Hebrew called bitachon. And this level of trust at times, you say, how is it possible? Well, how can I do it? What precedent can I base this on to have such an absolute trust? So number one, we have to remember that in every challenge, there's always a solution. And just because the challenge in this case means there's no precedent in how you were able to overcome this challenge, step number one, think about the little things in life. Sometimes we become so overwhelmed by thinking about what's all around us. We forget to thank God and realize how we're healthy, the things we do have, the blessings we have, and to count those blessings. And when we stop a moment and we realize the blessings that we have, those little blessings, and not so little, or those important blessings, but because they're constant, we forget about them. That in itself gives us strength and say, God got me to here and he's making sure I get through and he's standing on my side and he's my shepherd watching me. He can also take it a little further. 
In fact, we start off every single week after Shabbat when we say the Havdalah. We say, Yeshuasi, Behold, God is my salvation. And what's the next word we say? Eftach velo afchad. I am confident and I shall not fear. And we continue because because God is my strength, my praise, He is my salvation. Does that mean that everything's smooth sailing? Does that mean that all of a sudden nothing's going to be a challenge? Absolutely not. King David was the one that had many challenges, from within and from without, from with his family and from fighting wars for the Jewish people. But he had a certain serenity to him, that regardless of what the challenge was, whether it was being chased by Shoal, or being chased by his own son, or being chased by the enemy, he knew that God was with him. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Think about it. Imagine, many people do have it, and it's probably the most comforting thing. Whenever you're dealing with a problem, a challenge, and you have somebody you can call to talk about it, even if all they do is just listen, and they don't even answer back, and all of a sudden you hang up and you say, ah, I feel so much better. Why? Because you knew somebody's listening. Somebody can think about it with you. It automatically relieves a level of stress for you. They used to say two psychologists once met each other. They both went to school together. One looks really old and one looks uh, young and hip. So the other guy looks at him and says, well, how do you get so old? He says, listen to me, listening to all those people on my couch saying all those tsaras, all those problems. It gets to you after a while. The guy that looks young and looks at him says, what, do you actually listen? (laughs) (laughs) But King David knew that he had no problems. Why? Not that he had no problems, that he always had somebody holding his hand getting through those difficulties. And God was a real presence in his life and was real consciousness, and therefore, regardless of what happened, he would be able to get through it. This is what it tells us. The Medrash explains to us in text number 8, how did the Jewish people get through the difficulties in Egypt? Whenever Jews are persecuted, God's presence is, so to speak, persecuted along with them. As it is stated, in all their pain, He is pained. And even more so, what's even more important, Jewish tradition teaches us, just like King David says in Tehillim, Psalm 32, text number 9, those who trust in God Will be, surrounded, will be surrounded by benevolence. The very fact that we know that God is with us and going through that pain and suffering with us, that in itself gives us trust. And when we have the trust, we then know that God's kindness can manifest around us. And therefore, when we talk about anti-Semitism getting to us and bothering us or causing fear and anxiety or dread and worrying about our safety, then regardless of what the particular efforts we need to do physically to be able to protect ourselves, but the actual serenity to know that God is with us at every single time and God will not let us down, that in itself gives us an assurance and a protection because I will feel no evil because you are with me. I remember once, and I still recall this, the Rebbe was once talking by Fabregan doing the opposite. He's saying that the reason why we Jews have to be out of exile is because God is with us in exile. So if God wants to get out of exile, so therefore he'll take us out with him. But the idea is that God is with us in whatever happens. And because of that, we have the ability to get through the challenge, whatever it may be. Just a little um, tidbit or free, uh, what do you call it, free ad over here. The next course, meditation, 
course, is actually going to have some of these meditations or how we can meditate on this concept to help us get through different fears and anxieties and negativity that may be around us. But the question is now, let's take it a step further. Now that we have the optimism, let's go back to the second question. If we encountered anti-Semitism, what do we do now? How do we act differently? How does this change us? So let's go back to the next question when we talk about I know I skipped a few slides here, but here. What were some of the actions that you or others around you have taken after this incident? So as we mentioned, some people spoke back to them, some people called the authorities, some people ignored them. What did you do to be able to protect yourselves and others about it? So we know <clears throat> there's a saying, some people want to attribute it to, I think, uh, Benjamin Franklin, God helps those who help themselves. And if, or the famous story that they say, I sent you an ambulance, I sent you a fire engine, you didn't want to do You can't just say, I'll trust in God. What do you mean I trust in God? What am I doing to be able to cultivate? What am I doing to be able to change it? What is the Jewish approach? What does it mean? Is that a Jewish approach to say, yes, we only, God only helps those who help themselves? And the question is about not only about securing ourselves from anti-Semitism, but in any area of life. Do I say I'm going to sit and pray all day and God will already send me money from heaven or do I have to go earn a living? How does that work? The two, how does the concept of making or doing something but at the same time trusting in God jive with one another? So when we talk about it, we go back to the original case and probably the first anti-Semitic, openly anti-Semitic government in Jewish history besides Pharaoh and the Jewish people in Egypt. But what about the story of Esther on Purim. Numerous times we're going to talk about the story of Purim and reflect, but in the fourth chapter of the Megillah, there's an interesting story, part of the story that happens there. Mordechai finds out about the terrible decree that Achashverosh and Haman want to do and wipe out the Jewish people. And over here he calls upon Esther because he had uh, diplomats, he had protectsy as they want to call it, he had somebody in high office that can protect the Jewish people and calls upon Esther to go into the king and petition the king and save the Jews and he says, Esther don't you think that to hold it back you got to do what you got to do and help, back, help the Jewish people and go into the king and tell him that you're Jewish and save the Jewish people so Esther says, okay even though I haven't been called to the king for 30 days but I'm going to go to the, to the king, but on one condition. Text number 10. Esther dictated a message, page 25. Back to Mordechai. Go and assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan. Let them fast on my behalf. Let them neither eat nor drink for three days, day or night. I and my maidens will fast likewise. And then I will go back to the king, although it is contrary to the law. And if I perish, I shall perish. Mordechai went ahead and implemented all that Esther had commanded, and on the third day, Esther donned her royal apparel, stood in the inner court of the king's palace. So Esther over here is going to try to use the diplomacy. But while she tries to use the diplomacy, she tells Achashverosh, I'm sorry, she tells Mordechai, what do you need to do? Go get the Jewish people to repent. Go get the Jewish people to pray. Esther said from a critical component to her, to her diplomatic Ways and asks of Achashverosh is that I need the Jews to work on it spiritually. Why would Esther risk that? Why would she fast? She has to look good for the king. 
Even if it was a time when we say when a person's life was in danger, they're not even allowed to fast on Yom Kippur. Why over here was Esther all of a sudden risking her life by fasting and telling Mordechai, go fast and go into the Jewish people? What was Esther saying here? And the Hasidic interpretation gives us the following explanation. Then when we talk about the difference in any situation, consider the concept, for example, the Jews in the desert. The Jews in the desert, where did they get their food from? God gave them manna from heaven. God gave them food. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to do anything. All of a sudden, everything was given to them on a silver platter. They were protected by the clouds of glory. Today, in order for us to make a living, we're not getting manna from heaven. At least I'm not. And we're not, we don't, I'm not protected by the clouds of glory. You got to work. You got to work hard to be able to make a living. Why is that? What's the difference between then and now? The realities seem different. And the difference was back then, while the Jewish people were in the desert, yes, it was a miraculous event. It was miraculous that the Jewish people had no, no part in what they were receiving. In fact, the words of the Talmud is, it was called bread of embarrassment. It was just given to them. They didn't work for it. Today, what God is doing is he's creating a partnership. He says, you make the vessel, I'll fill it. You make the void. You do your part, and I will do my part. What God wants from us is an investment. He wants to see how we participate in that level that we are creating, that earning from God. We are gifted from God. We are creating that concealment in order so that God can fill it. In fact, it's an interesting paradox if you look at it. On one hand, we're creating that space that God is giving us that blessing. But think about it. The very fact that God gives me the choice and to say that I can earn my living, what does that say? That gives me the ability to say that I'm the one that did it, not God. That means I have to make a proactive choice to recognize God's blessing in what I do. So God created a world where everything comes from God, but at the same time He creates a concealment. He created a world that we should be able to think that we're in charge. You have a mighty army. That's why you won the war. You have a great business. You have only one believable mind. That's why you're such a great entrepreneur. God allows us to have a concealment. God allows us to, so to speak, move God out of the picture. Why? Because he wants us to invite God in the picture. He wants us to make God part of our life. That through our work, we can think we put the seedling in the ground. But how does that seedling actually grow something? Only because of God's blessing. You could say I'm an amazing farmer, but without God's blessing, nothing would grow. You can work and work and work in a hundred different types of businesses and make not a dime. It is only because God's blessing. But at the same time, this is where our action makes a difference. We create the concealment. We create that level of concealment. And at the same time, we allow God to be able to recognize that God comes in with those blessings. In a case of, let's say, anti-Semitism, just to go back to our case in point, we create the concept of getting the security and putting the proper measures and doing the things that we need to do. But at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, we know that the only way that we will be protected is because of God's blessings. Is this a partnership between us and God? Absolutely. But not in the sense that he provides the raw materials and that we do the rest of the work. It's a, it's a partnership in God with God in a way that God helps those who make it appear as though they are helping themselves. God wants you to make 
that concealment. God wants you to make, in the words of the Talmud, the vessel so he can give you that blessing. In the words of the third Chabad Rebbe, this is a little bit long of a statement that he says here, but you can see it in text number 11, page 28. Everything that comes into the being is this material world must materialize through natural means. Nature, however, is simply a garment, meaning God's energy of bringing things into existence must be dressed, concealed, and obscured to the point where the observer sees only a person that appears to run naturally. In truth, however, everything emerges directly from God himself. He obscures himself to divine bestowals until the miraculous and supernatural reality of material. Existence is not observable and material developments seem perfectly natural. When, for example, God provides an individual with an ample livelihood, it is not done through a miracle, as was Sinai Desert, when God raised manna from heaven and the skies. Rather, God sends the blessings through the individual's business affairs. The gains reaped through the commerce appear so natural that the individual can be fooled into thinking along the lines, it is my strength that generated the wealth, and it is my wisdom that led me to success. For I am well versed in commerce. I know what to buy. I am prudent with time to sell. These arrangements work as long as we prepare a valid garment through which the divine flow of sustenance can descend into material reality. Our occupation must be proportionate, so that according to the rules of nature, the sum required for our livelihood could theoretically be gained through such an occupation. If this requirement is met, our occupation serves as a perfect garment in which God can disguise himself, his blessing, for we could easily claim, I acquired his wealth through my own skills, because it is indeed considered natural for such an occupation to yield a range of profit. Since such assertion is logically sound, our occupation is appropriate conduit for God's kindness. Accordingly, while we work, we should be mindful of our belief that our earnings are God's blessings. They are like any other open miracle, like a miracle of manna. Our actions were merely a garment behind which God can disguise his blessing. One should apply the same concept to all areas of life. Pursue your needs in accordance with your understanding, with the intention of forging an appropriate garment. Through God will send his blessings, God will then act as he's his fit, providing the truest form of good and appropriate to you. So, if it doesn't work out, which at times it doesn't work out, so are we, am I to assume that it's because I didn't have, at that time, for that situation, have a good relationship with God or trust? No, maybe God wants to make a different garment. That means there are many different ways that God can experience. That what we are saying over here is most importantly is that the very fact that we have, so to speak, not seeing the open miracles in front of us is because we, that is our intent, to make that garment, to make things look normal, so to speak. The sun comes up in the morning, you wake up in the morning, it seems like a natural event, but you dig a little deeper, you realize this is godly, it's miraculous. So God wants us to create those garments so there can be a natural vehicle of how this world should work, but at the same time to realize that it's godly. The question is, what's the upshot of this perspective? But my question is, though, what happens when it doesn't work? Then we have to try a different garment, a different vessel. Or intensify, or recognize, or maybe we're believing too much in the garment, not in the purveyor that's behind it. And we're believing too much in our talents. That means if God wants to give you, let's put it this way. I remember there was a, somebody that said, 
the, if God wants to give you something, he, so he bought a lot of tickets, he only bought one ticket. Because if God wants you to win, he'll make you win with that one ticket. Right? If God wants to give you something, he's going to give it to you. If he doesn't want to give it to you, you can make it 20 garments, it's not going to help you. So what you need to do is create that vehicle to be able to have it. So what we have over here is, how does this change now with the way we look at things in a practical sense? Because what it tells us over here is, what is most important? Take the story of Esther and the Jews at the same time. Let's take the story of Esther. What did Esther realize was important? What was her primary focus? She said, yes, I have to make diplomatic measures. I have to lobby Achashverosh. I have to make sure that Achashverosh, that I have to do what I have to do at that, uh, at that level because I'm the queen. But do the Jews have to lobby Achashverosh? Absolutely not. Not only that, what she viewed as the most important component of her lobbying is the very fact that the Jews are fasting and praying for her. The garment, that's only the externalities. The job you have, that's only the vehicle to be able to bring God's blessing to you. But what's the most important thing you have is the blessing. The security that we have, that we get, and whatever it may be, the alarms, the cameras, and all the wonderful things, that's all wonderful. But without God's protection, it means nothing. That's what Esther realized. And that's what Esther was imploring on Mordechai. That she was saying, don't focus on the garment, the diplomacy. Focus on what the intent is behind it with the Jewish people. In text number 12, Esther's conduct demonstrated that she considered her act of approaching Achashverosh's mirror of a garment <clears throat> for God's salvation, knowing that it would in fact an entirely supernatural miracle. It was therefore necessary that the Jews first pray and fast before becoming worthy of such a miracle. Nevertheless, because God desired that a supernatural salvation should appear within the natural order, Mordechai instructed Esther to take the appeal to Achashverosh, despite the grave risk. Consequently, it was not a great significance for the features of the garment to meet all the demands of the natural order, for the primary concern was not the medium through which the God's salvation would arrive, but rather the need to ensure that God's first salvation was secured. What's particularly interesting here is that over here, Esther had no other options. I mean, if she wouldn't save the Jews, that's it. All the Jews were under the dominion of Achashverosh. They would have been wiped out completely. And what she did, she had all her cards on the table and said, this is what I got to do. And what she realized was that I, one has to go with the other. You can't have one without the other. I can't have the garment without the, clo without the blessing that's coming with it. And even though that, yes, God can bring a miracle in many different ways, but she realized, yes, God wants me to make this diplomatic effort and pursue and persist that Achashverosh should be the one to avert the decree, but it's not going to come without the Jewish people praying for it. In contrast to the Jewish people who went to the party. What was the difference? The Jewish people who feasted at Achashverosh's party just a few years earlier, why did they go to the party? Even though Mordechai told them not to go, what their argument was, we need to keep Good relationship with Achashverosh. It was the end of the exile. The Jews were 70 years in the Babylonian ex in the exile at the time. And therefore they said, how do we know what's going to happen? Maybe we can get him to uh, build a holy temple. Who knows what it may be? We have to keep good ties. And the way we keep good ties is if we break bread with him. And as, assuming at the time, originally the food was going to be kosher even. And they said, what would be wrong? But the problem was that Achashverosh came dressed 
in the high priest's garments. The whole purpose of the party was to show his subjugation on the Jews. And because they were trying to, to pander, so to speak, and recognize that their lobbying was going to be the albeit, that was their mistake. They didn't realize the spirit was more important than their garment. They were focusing more on the garment than on the spirit. Esther realized their mistake. A few years later, Esther realized her mistake and said, listen here, this was the mistake of their thinking. She took the opposite approach and she realized that we have to focus on the spirit. While the garment is important, the spirit is what gets you going and therefore the miracle can come in many different ways as long as the Jewish people are worthy for that miracle to happen. So it was, therefore, she needed the Jewish people to be worthy. Where does this take us today? So I remember... In the spring of 1990, um, we were in yeshiva. Where was I? I was in 10th grade at the time, uh, 9th grade. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the afternoon, which was very uncommon, we were all called for an assembly. And there was assembly because the Rebbe was going to say a talk in the middle of the afternoon, which was totally un, um, un, un, uh, un, uh, you know, unannounced. What happened was, as was documented many years later, we found out, and I'll soon tell you what the, it was about. This was April 23, 1990. The Rebbe had very close ties and connections with the Israeli government. And the Israeli government would regularly consult and ask uh, the Rebbe for advice and what they would do. Sometimes they would listen, and sometimes, unfortunately, they didn't listen. But it, in fact, the book just recently came out from a Mossad fellow that actually documents a lot of this discussion and strategic military things that happened. And in April 23, 1990, right before Mincha, Mr. El Yochim Rubinstein, who was a, an aide to Prime Minister Yitzchak Rabin, Yitzchak Shamir, I'm sorry, called up Rabbi Benjamin Klein, who was the Rebbe's secretary, and told the Rebbe's secretary that they just got word from their intelligence that the PLO, which was then under Arafat, was planning international um, orders to strike Jewish targets throughout the world. And this was right before Mincha. Right after Mincha, the Rebbe called for an emergency talk, so to speak, and gave the t- a talk about... Rubenstein relayed this message to the Rebbe, and the Rabbi Klein, to Rabbi Klein, and Rabbi Klein related to the Rebbe, and then the Rebbe addressed everybody by Mincha. And I remember this uh, well, because I remember what we had to do for it, and the Rebbe said as follows. And this is the words of the Rebbe at the time, and I just want to show you something very interesting as we break up the Rebbe's words. Text number 13. About an hour ago, this was the words, I remember the Rebbe used the terminology in Yiddish, the way the Rebbe said it, and about an hour ago I received word that the PLO commanded all of its international chapters to strike Jewish, en- Jewish enemies and inflict bodily harm as much more may never come to be. We will not allow, la- elaborate on such negative things. It is therefore necessary to underscore God's abundant blessings to all Jews in all places, for all that they need, with an attitude of happiness and authentic trust. Special emphasis should be placed on the well-known directive, think good will be good, positive thoughts will lead to positive outcomes. It is also appropriate to utilize this information, not to frighten God forbid, but with a happy attitude, thinking positively to add more, to add more in the matters of Torah and mitzvahs. Now look over here how the Rebbe addressed this, and I'll soon get to what the Rebbe said to do. Number one, the Rebbe said, don't brood in the negativity. 
Now, if the Rebbe is addressing this threat, that means it's a real threat. The real threat, and the Rebbe at the same time said, don't get hung up on the negativity, what they're going to do. I'm not even going to talk about what they want to do. Because what's the problem when you talk about what they want to do? You're adding fuel to the fire. You're giving them existence. Secondly, the Rebbe went out of his way to say not to cause panic, to reduce panic. Don't be afraid. Don't start causing people scared. Don't make people scared. There's an interesting story. In England, there was a fellow, you see his art a lot of times, his name was Elazar Kalman Tiefenbrunn, had a restaurant, a kosher restaurant, one of the only kosher restaurants. And one day, two fellows walked into his restaurant, looking around, they were not Jewish-looking fellows, to say the least, looking around, they looked around, they observed, and they walked out. An hour later, he gets a call, and he said, and the person on the other line said, your place is going to be bombed. This is what this fellow did. This is what happened. He called up his partner, who was Mr. Glick, and they said, we got to call up, what are we going to do? So he says, let's call the Rebbe. They called the Rebbe, Rabbi Kharakov, which was the Rebbe's secretary on the other line, and they asked, they said, one second, find out. And Rabbi Kharakov told them, don't worry about it, and don't even make a police report. This is what he told, this is what he told them. This Mr. Tiefenbrunn says, what do you mean? The guy said the place is going to bomb. People are going to be here. It's dangerous. And the Rebbe got on the line. And the Rebbe said in Yiddish, he says, see, it's garnished. It's nothing. It turned out that it was nothing. Everybody lived happily ever after. A few weeks later, this Mr. Tiefenbrunn was in New York. And he came to talk. You know, what's going on over here? Was there something? Was there nothing? What was the reason? What was the rationale? Why should I make a police report? And the Rebbe said as follows. He didn't, the Rebbe didn't, Rabbi Kharikov told him, said, the Rebbe told him was as follows. He says, you're the only kosher restaurant in town. You were to file a police report. Nothing, it was nothing. But even if you file a police report, it's going to make a tumult. And what you're going to do is scare people from coming into your place. Unnecessarily. Why ne- unnecessarily scare people? And like this, they're going to end up going to a non-kosher place instead of going to a kosher place when for an unnecessary reason. So why bother? The Rebbe was always concerned even in the greatest times, not to reduce the panic. I remember even in 1991, when the riots were happening in Crown Heights, a pogrom in Crown Heights, a person was killed. The first thing was to reduce the panic. Don't worry, it'll all get sorted out. And even then, when other incidents happened, as we're going to talk about other anti-Semitic incidents, the Rebbe was no stranger to anti-Semitism. He himself, they actually just found just to give you a, just a sidetrack a little bit, I'm sorry, going off tangent, but they just found in the shul where the Rebbe lived, uh, growing up as a kid, as a teenager, he led a, what do you call it, like a JDL type of thing. He led a front fighting the Cossacks that were attacking the Jewish people, and they say that they found a gun, a, a, a pistol that belonged to the Rebbe that he was leading to be able to fight off the enemies that were fighting the Jewish people to protect the Jewish farmers from their neighbors. So he was no stranger to what it means to be able to deal with anti-Semitism. And still, one of the things he underscored was to reduce the panic. Even as a child, while the programs were happening, his mother said that he would go around giving lollies to the kids that they shouldn't cry, that they shouldn't panic. But uh, thirdly, what the Rebbe says is, is build on the trust. Trusting God, going back to that verse of Psalm 23, trusting that God is our shepherd, and realizing, trusting that God as he says, uses the terminology, think good will be good, and that in itself creates a vessel for God's blessings. Worry less and believe more. Fourthly, the Rebbe said, now with worries reduced, what do we need to do is take appropriate action. And appropriate action, I still remember today, was that the Rebbe said that they should say three verses of Tehillim. Everybody should add 
and say special three verses of Tehillim. And what were one of the verses of Tehillim that the Rebbe said should be said? Don't just say verses of Tehillim which are crying out to God. Make sure to conclude with verse 150. What is verse 150? The last psalm, which concludes, Kol that we thank God, we praise to God, we sing to God. Again, even at the time where you're worried about your future, you're worried about these attacks, do it out of a positive notion, out of an absolute trust that you can thank God for the miracle that happened. At the same time, the Rebbe said also to add a learning and not fast, but give the amount of charity that it would be for three meals of that day. That was the other thing that the Rebbe said at the time. And Baruch Hashem, the terror threat did not come to realization, thank God. And what did materialize, the concept of the Rebbe giving us a plan how to approach anti-Semitism. We need less panic and less negativity. We need more faith and more optimism. This is how we know how we can act. The Torah teaches every single person in every single community how we can go about it. And therefore, considering Jewish survival, considering what we've gone through, considering what we've lived, the fact that we're a miraculous nation, we have, just like Esther in her time, realized that the main thing is the spirit, not the garment. God is going to save us. The question is, do you want to be part of the plan? Do you want to be able to be part of that action? And therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what can we do more like Esther, in what way can we tap into the source of Jewish survival and bring about another chapter of Jewish survival? Not just think about and remember the past, but how can we ensure the future? What can we do to tap into that spirit and be part of the action that God can count on us in making that garment and believing that the spirit is there? Next week, we're going to talk about why does anti-Semitism persist? It's one of the oldest questions about hatred. Many answers have been given throughout the ages, and we're going to explore some of them. Which answers work, which answers don't. And finally, we'll discuss our answer to the question that will guide us to how we can try to make hate fade away. Here's just a little recap on today's class. Lesson one, the eternal people. One, worrying creates dejection and ineptitude. To address an issue effectively, we need to reduce the anxiety associated with it. 2. The Jewish people are an eternal people. History has shown that despite the pain and suffering that we have endured, the Jews and Judaism all were toward feeling optimistic about our...